It's 2022, which means it's a renewal year and you need CEUs. 30 if you're in South Carolina, and three of those have to be on ethics, jurisprudence, and whatever else goes in that category. Look, the year's going by fast, and you can knock out all those requirements with a MedBridge subscription, and you can get 40% off with the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD. I have a friend named Shelly, and she's a little lazy. Her words, not mine. She hasn't done any Con Ed over the past year and a half until she got her subscription set up. And what she does is she just puts modules on her phone while she watches 90 Day Fiance. Great show, by the way. Is she learning anything? No. But is she getting the local governing bodies off her bat? Yes. Your subscription also includes NSCA credits, OCS certification prep courses, patient education, home exercise programs, EMR integration. There's tons and tons of resources. Again, use the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD to get 40% off your individual subscription. That's the best price that MedBridge offers, okay? Only the best for our listeners. Now enjoy the episode. In this episode of the Better Faster Podcast, Josh and I are back in the clinic talking about anterior knee pain, specifically patellofemoral pain and patellar tendinopathy. And this was actually by a listener's request, so thank you for that. We like those. Please keep them coming. And because we got such good feedback after putting out the shoulder impingement and plantar fasciitis episodes, we followed the same theme here and talked about clinical presentation, assessment, the joint-by-joint approach, and big overall concepts to consider while rehabbing knee conditions, as well as how to train around these injuries. So if you liked the episode... Please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. Then what we need you to do is grab your friend's phone and leave us another review. The episode is coming up, but first, we have two Con Ed courses coming up here in Columbia. The first is Donnie Thompson's Body Temperance Certification, which is Saturday, November 3rd. Josh is one of the instructors for that, and they just opened up registration over the weekend. It's actually limited to 40 spots, so it may actually be sold out by the time this episode drops. So I jump on it as soon as you can. The link for that is in the show notes. Then on November 10th and 11th, we are hosting the Chris Johnson for his clinical running essentials course at Vertex. The link for that one is also in the show notes. CEUs are offered for both of these courses, and it is a renewal year, so keep that in mind. All right, we're talking about anterior knee pain right here on the Better Faster Podcast. Here we go. Happy Monday, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Better Faster Podcast. The day by request of one of our listeners, we're talking about anterior knee pain, and the two most common types we see are patellofemoral pain, which is also called runner's knee, and patellar tendinopathy, which is known as jumper's knee. But don't let the terminology and the semantics fool you, because this happens to all types of people, and they're fairly common diagnoses we see in the fitness athlete community as well. And I just want to acknowledge that, yes, there are plenty of other types of anterior knee pain, like fat pad syndrome, bursitis. Oshkod slaughters we see in kids, meniscal type pains. But for this episode, we're just going to focus on patellar tendinopathy and patellofemoral pain. So before we get started, Josh, how you doing this week? Did you survive the hurricane? I survived, man. It was good. Thankfully, um, you know, being here in Columbia, we were not hit near as bad as uh, expected or nearly as it wasn't nearly as bad as what they experienced on the coast. So our our thoughts are definitely with people that um, you know lo- uh, you know lost a lot in in this kind of storm. So we're thankful that it was okay here, um, but. You know, this seems to be a regular occurrence now. This is four straight falls, man. Yeah, man. It's uh, dude, they they don't mess around these days. They cancel school at USC like on Tuesday. I yeah, think. we had four days off, and we were originally off um 
uh, the day this episode's coming out. Um, but they decided to have us, uh, you know, go back to school a little bit earlier because it wasn't as bad as anticipated. But they almost have to, man, um, with what, you know, the delay in evacuation in the, uh, you know, the Katrina situation, you know, in even in South Carolina, there's a history of, of not acting quick enough. And, you know, I remember stories of babies being born on the interstate because it was, everything was mm-hmm. so backed up, you know. So, um, yeah, I think they have to, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that flood we had three years ago, that pretty much wrecked the city of Columbia. So, um, right. yeah, I don't, I don't blame them for sure. Yeah. But, um, but anyways, let's, uh, let's circle back around. So anterior knee pain, mm-hmm. why don't we start out by just talking a little bit about, you know, what it is, what those two diagnoses are and maybe why it happens in the first place. So patellar just a really basic definition that's going to refer to an injury to the tissue that connects the kneecap to the shin. And, it's often misnomered as patellar tendonitis, but that inflammatory period is at the beginning and it's very brief. That part is usually coming on within a few days and anything after that is what we call tendinosis, where basically the tissue that's being affected is affected at a cellular level and basically what happens over time starts to degenerate, it becomes a little more brittle and less elastic and you know, has some pain associated with that. And then patellofemoral pain, that refers to the articulation between the back of the kneecap and the bottom of the thigh bone. And so what happens is a lot of times that area can become compressed and irritated for a variety of reasons. And that can be due to issues regarding strength, mobility, mechanics, and oftentimes it's, it's a combination of the three. And the textbooks are going to tell you that these two injuries are largely due to overuse. And while that may be true, I like to think of them more as overload injuries. And the reason for that is because most of the time people are not actually overusing their knees or really any other part of that body for that matter. It's, it's more often than not due to faulty mechanics or impairments that you're going to see at the hip and the ankle. And when you throw that term overuse around, you got to be careful because that implies that if the problem was from doing too much, then the solution must be to rest. And that's still a big problem in the healthcare community. I know we did a whole episode on this a while back. But it's so common for a physical therapist or an orthopedist to just tell the patient just to shut it down completely and to rest. Like that's ever going to fix anything. What you have to realize is that orthos and for the most part PTs are not the authority on training and strength and conditioning. We're getting better at it, but we're not quite there yet. So my point is like if your patient listens to this because it still happens all the time. If your doctor tells you to stop training, stop doing CrossFit or stop squatting deep, but he's fat and disheveled and he hasn't cleaned anything but his plate or lifting anything over 200 pounds beside his wife in the past decade, go ahead and judge that book by its cover and get a second opinion. <laughs> so what you got to understand, what you got to understand, I hope the listeners can conceptualize is that complete rest is a false narrative. It's not based in reality. And it actually goes against what the clear cut evidence and what the science tells us. And especially if we're talking about patellar tendinopathy, because when that becomes chronic, you're not going to be able to rest or inset your way out of it. And it's going to take some work and it's going to take some time to resolve it. Anything else you want to add to that, Josh? Oh man, that was extensive. And I think you hit the nail on the head with a lot of the overuse for, um, or kind of the overuse versus the the mechanical side of things. Um, for me, that's kind of what I'm looking for in terms of like the coaching side of things to take that aspect of it is like, if, if an athlete's coming to complain to me of some, some anterior knee pain, oftentimes, you know, when we watch their movement patterns, there's something that we need to work on there. So I love that you kind of made the distinction there. That's not always just overuse. It's more about, uh, you know, how they're going about performing those different movements. But, um, let's, let's kind of go through a little bit of a um an avatar here or a case scenario somebody walks into the clinic brandon they're like hey you know what i've got this this knee pain and it's either hurting like you said running jumping squatting whatever it is i'm getting some pain it's kind of right here in the front of my knee um what what are you going to do to kind of narrow this down a little bit and then ultimately where are you going to start with uh this process of getting them better yeah so 
you know, with this type of thing, I always like to start with like the 30,000 foot view. And I, I'd like to begin with the movement assessment and then sort of go joint by joint from there. Mm-hmm. So typically, not always, but typically you're going to see that when you're assessing someone who has anterior knee pain, when you're looking at them in the sagittal plane, so that's like looking at them head on, you're usually going to see an increased amount of hip adduction and femoral internal rotation, like either during squats or they're jumping and landing mechanics or they're in a step down test, which by the way, step down test is one of my favorite moving assessments for looking at anterior knee pain. And all that is, is just a lateral step down or a heel tap off of a box about six inches high. And what I do is I just tell the patient, stand on the edge of the box on the side with their hands on their hips. And I'll cue them to slowly tap their opposite heel on the ground as if they were touching an eggshell. And I do this barefoot for everyone. And sometimes again, with their shoes on, if I think that that's a factor. And if there's any sort of issue with their kinematics, nine times out of 10, this is where I'm going to see it. So all kinds of things can happen from their pelvis dropping to one side to the knee caving in. And with that, you usually some, see some pronation or some kind of navicular drop. And the reason why it's so re- revealing is that if it happens on this test, you can bet that it's going to happen every time they go up and down a stair, every time they jump and land, and probably every time their foot hits the ground when they run. And this is a problem more so with patellofemoral pain because that valgus moment at the hip and that internal rotation is going to create a lot of compression along where the back of that kneecap articulates with the femur. And that's going to be more so usually on the lateral aspect, kind of on the outside. And you just think about hundreds or thousands of steps a day, that can really create a lot of irritation. So if, if you don't have that step down test as part of whatever movement assessment you're doing, give it a try this week on one or two patients or clients and see what you think. And um, I always, of course, check the squat as well if they're not too irritable. So, I mean, if their pain isn't too high and if it does actually settle quickly when they stop doing whatever provokes it. So I'll check that loaded and unloaded, or at the very least get some video of their squat with a front and a side view, because those are going to tell me two completely different stories. And Josh, I'm going to touch on this, but I'd like you to elaborate because I know this is your bread and butter, but kind of like the step down test. A lot of times you'll see that valgus collapse, but my experience is more common for a patient to have a quad dominant squat which means that they basically just, just dump forward and the knees will go way over the toes. And before we get into that, I do want to clarify that I do not take issue with people's knees going over their toes because that's how we move as human beings. And a lot of athletic positions require that. There's even times I'll intentionally load people in valgus, but if it's a, the painful position or B it's happening for other issues, like a lack of control, then that's a problem. And you know, when the knees get loaded before the hips during the squat, we're typically going to get into positions where we, you know, where we can't, uh, absorbing the adaptive stress better. Sorry, I'm losing my thought. I'm losing my train of thought. I was just going to roll. That's all right. Yeah. Um, take it to where, pick up wherever you want, or you want me to pick up, and then we can edit it out a little bit. Um, hang on. You're rolling though. I like I'm it. Trying to talk about like load and proximal to this. So let me get my hang on. Up. Let's let's stop it. Uh, let's let's pick it back up. Um, after I said I'll intentionally load people into values because I want to make sure we talk about that. But um, let me see. All right. Let me think. All right. I got it. You ready? Whenever you go. All right. So if it's a, the painful position or B it's happening for other issues, like a lack of control, then that's a problem because what's happening is that the knees are getting loaded before the hips during the squat. And typically you're going to be able to get into positions to absorb and adapt the stress better if we load proximal to distal. So that's spine, hips, then knees. And there's all exceptions to that rule. So it's not the gospel, but 99% of the time, that's how my mind works for this presentation. No, I think I, I love how you put that in there, man. Um, I love that step down test too, because that's the first thing uh, I'm looking for is that single leg control. And I think that test, I actually picked that test up from you and I use it in the gym uh, whenever I see this issue too. Um, and I like how you talked about the inherently load, you know, 
the knees traveling uh, in, beyond the toes is not a dangerous position necessarily. But uh, like you mentioned, if it is the painful position, I need to find out if that's the case. That way I can, again, take that position out because a big thing is kind of removing what's causing the issue when we start this kind of, uh, you know, the rehab process here. So you got to assess that. You got to find out if that position is what's causing their pain. Um, and then I kind of, the only other thing I wanted to add too was like, um, you know, when somebody comes in, they're explaining these things, you're watching them move. A lot of times, you know, taking a good history and, and, and you know, careful palpation are going to help figure out some things too. Because oftentimes you can kind of pinpoint a little bit what's going on. Like if it's a patella tendon, uh, you know, tendinopathy, a lot of times they're, they're able to point to it. They can pinpoint. It's right there, um, kind of that bottom, the inferior pole of the patella, right? You know, they're able to point to it and they know exactly what's going on. A lot of times that patellofemoral pain um, is a little bit more broad. Um, sometimes you can be able to kind of feel on the underside of the patella if you're moving it over and oftentimes there's uh, you know some pain there um, so sometimes you know you can get a lot from their history their moving assessment palpating a little bit and then you should kind of be able to narrow down what's going on yeah so that's so true I mean it's, it's always good to start palpation just because it does give you information I mean that's obviously clearly going to be different potentially to diagnosis but it also you know shows the patient that you're actually paying attention to what, what they're here to see you for and of course you know there's that laying of hands effect too as well so that's 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 very very important um but moving on i guess after the the movement assessment things that's when i sort of break it down and go joint by joint and this will kind of go top down so uh things that, that i look for are usually at a lack of control at the hips and that's really important and you got to be careful with this because you know, they may be just fine with manual muscle testing, which you know manual muscle testing isn't great, but it's a completely different story with functional testing. So even if they get a five out of five on glute strength, but that step down test or their single leg stance or their squat sucks, you got to train that as part mm-hmm. of the rehab process. And, you know, other things to look for at the hip are a lack of extension. So check that Thomas test and then make sure you're checking active and passive hip extension to see what you get. Mm-hmm. And um, moving on down to the knee. Anything else you want to add to that at all? No, I think that, I think that's you're exactly right in the hip. Like oh. you know, manual muscle testing, man. Like we we for all the students that are listening, you know, I, I I feel your pain because we get it pounded in our head, and oftentimes you know it doesn't tell the whole picture. So you have to you know test them off of the table too, and that goes back to the movement assessment, and kind of looking at things in terms of how it actually works in terms of our daily function. Yeah, I mean, in manual muscle testing, it serves a purpose. There's a time and a place for it, but the problem is we just know that 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 inner rater reliability is just so bad. I mean, mm-hmm. you can get five different therapists and they're going to give you five different numbers. And um, plus there's a lot of things that can inhibit that street test, like pain and, and all kinds of stuff, or just the way that you, you know, give instructions. So it's not the gospel. So make sure that you have other ways to check things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so at the knee, you'll see several things. So you often see a loss of flexion and terminal knee extension. So for extension, the way I like to test that is I like to get them long sitting. So that's sitting on the floor so that the surface is hard with their legs out straight. And I'll just ask them to lock their knee out and pull their toes back. And if you listen to this episode and you're trying this, what you should see is that your heel lifts up from the ground a little bit. And that's good. And that may even mean that you have some hyperextension, which is even better because if you're lacking extension, that's a big problem because when we walk, we're supposed to strike the ground with our heel in a fully locked out knee and if that knee is stuck and even just a little bit of flexion, that patellofemoral joint's under compression. Not a ton, but that does add up over time with a bunch of steps. So that's usually where I start. I am going to prioritize turbo knee extension as far as that goes. 
Yep. And that, I think that um, is something too. You're also in that instance, I'm going to look at the other knee too. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of, just like you talked about the hip too. It's like, you want to make sure that, you know, yeah, maybe they are, maybe they don't have that hyperextension. Maybe they're right at zero or a little bit of flexion. But I also want to look at the other knee too, to compare it side to side. Cause mm-hmm. that's, that's really going to be telling if one side they have some hyperextension and the other side is, is back to, to zero or maybe just slight flexion. Like then you can really tell that there's an issue going on there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And everything, I'm glad you said that because really everything you're assessing with this is checking both sides to see the difference for sure. Because, you know, I know we're all asymmetrical human beings, but a lot of times these movements, especially in the gym, they do require symmetry. So we have to keep that in mind. Um, and then for knee flexion, so hip flexors, they most definitely are going to play a role in this, but I like to just have my patients lay prone. So that's on your belly. And I like to see how close I can get their heel to their butt. And if there's a difference between sides, that probably means that their quads are over tension. And that's another thing that, you know, can contribute because over tension quads can give a bit of an upper pull in that patella. And again, increase the amount of compression at that joint. So make sure you check that as well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, then of course, you know, ultimately it kind of, we get back down to the ankle. Um, mm-hmm. And that seems mm-hmm. to be something that uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, if there's a lack of ankle range of motion, then the knee has to compensate in some way. A lot of times that's what leads to some of these, uh, some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and <clears throat> that's so important. So there's, there's a lot of things to check at the ankle too. It's not just dorsiflexion. So one thing that a lot of people probably don't think about is a loss of tibial internal rotation because we just, we just don't get it emphasized very much in school for some reason. And there's actually a few SFMA breakouts you can use to check that. But for me, that's just a really quick assessment. I'll usually have a patient in the seated position with their knees stabilized, and I'll just ask them to turn their feet inward as far as possible. And usually you'll see less on the affected side, uh, the side of knee pain, because when they go in, and what happens, what we think that's happening is if they go into valgus during a squat or during that closed chain knee flexion. That's actually tibial external rotation occurring, if you can picture that. So that motion needs to be freed up enough, essentially, to be able to do things like squatting and going downstairs. So um, resources for that, if you're not familiar with tibial internal rotation, uh, again, check FMS, check, check all their stuff. Another one is Urson Religioso. He's the I think the modern manual therapist, I think he's got a few yep. different names, but he's really, really good on that. Um, so uh, make sure you're checking that this week if that's something you don't normally do. Uh, what else? Lateral tibial glide. Yeah. That's important, especially with a squat, right? So mm-hmm. um, we'd like to look for about 30 degrees there, rough uh, plus or minus five. And the reason for that is because we need our athletes to be able to get their knees out while also keeping their knees in line with the toes during a squat. And of course, everyone's favorite ankle dorsiflexion, right? If you miss right. that, you probably need to turn your PT license a day. <laughs> <laughs> but check it however you like. But my favorite is always that wall ankle dorsiflexion test. And the first time I saw it was on the TPI screen. But basically what you do is you have your patient or your athlete place their toes, one hand width from the wall, and see if they can dorsiflex enough to get their knee to touch the wall without the heel rising. And as a side note, we do that test. Make sure you cue your patient, aim their knee towards like the fourth and fifth toe so they don't cheat that test. And dorsiflex is important from everything, just from walking normal with the heel strike, to squatting properly. Otherwise, first thing you're going to see are those feet are going to turn out excessively and things are going to fall apart higher up the chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. No, I think that's great. I think um, providing that 
Um, you know, just we're, we're trying to kind of create that picture of, yes, they're coming in with this knee issue, but it's so much more than just uh, a mm-hmm. knee issue. It, uh, you have to look above and below. I like taking that joint, uh, you know, that joint by joint approach and assessing mm-hmm. at each joint and then looking at it in multiple ways, looking at maybe each thing, some of them in isolation, but then also together in terms of like a, a functional type test, like that, that step down, that, that lateral step down right there or, or mm-hmm. anything like that, the, uh, the wall dorsiflexion test. So I think that uh, hopefully every everybody that's listening there is also along the same line of thinking that somebody comes in with this, this knee issue. We're not just trying to, uh, you know, we're not, you know, focused in too much. We got to make sure we take that 30,000 foot view and then we can kind of get that whole picture. So we really do have a good place to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta check everything. You gotta treat the whole person in this regard, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then- so, so now this person comes in and, and you've got, uh, you know, you kind of have an idea of, of some different things that you want to work on. Um, you know, where are we starting? Well, um, it, it depends on the diagnosis, right? So right. Um, I think like most things, most injuries, you know, whatever I felt that needs to be addressed on the mobility side of things is where I'm going to start. So whatever I saw in that assessment. So there are literally hundreds of manual therapy techniques or mobility drills that you can do. And the thing is that they all work. It just has to be the right thing for the right person. So that said, I'm usually spending some time working on some combination of ankle mobility, you know, dorsiflexion, tibial interrotation, lateral tibial glide, then knee flexion, terminal knee extension, hip extension. But one point that I want to emphasize is that whatever you do passively, be sure to follow it up with something actively loading into those new positions so that it quote unquote sticks. Otherwise, they might be right back to square one within a day. And then from there, I'm going to start loading tissues at an appropriate rate where the patient can make progress without irritating their symptoms. And, you know, one thing I advise more so when dealing with chronic patellar tendinopathy is to have an honest conversation about expectations from the beginning. So, Mr. Smith, I'm confident that we'll get this knee pain better and that you'll get back to training, but it it won't be on your terms. It's probably going to take a few weeks to start feeling noticeably better. It may take two or three months to get back to training hundred percent, but it's going to take consistency on your part. And I'll lay out the blueprint for you the best I can. And we can make changes along the way as needed because patellar tendinopathy sucks to treat. Sometimes it can, especially when it gets chronic, it takes a while and you just have to be patient with it. No, I think that's great. I think that um, another thing, at least from like the coach's perspective, like somebody comes to me and this is something that's like, you know, me and athletes like, Hey, yeah, I'm getting a little bit, uh, uh, you know, a little discomfort kind of in the front of my knee. And maybe you don't feel necessarily comfortable with, with some of these evaluation techniques, you know, you, you know, it's not necessarily in your bag, bag of tricks. Um, the first thing I'm trying to do is I'm, I, again, I'm trying to find ways to modify what I'm doing to allow them to keep moving. So taking any kind of exercise, like, you know, say like a, um, a squat and trying to decrease the amount of knee flexion that's needed and see if I can still perform a, a squat without any discomfort. So if I can change a regular barbell squat into a box squat, something where they can sit back a little more, a little more vertical shin and uh, it, it decreases the amount of knee flexion necessary and they can perform it without pain, then I'm going to keep loading it and keep performing that movement if I can. Or if they're pulling, you know, from the ground is painful because that's just a little too much knee flexion for them and I can get them to start at the top or, or do like a rack pull or something with a really vertical shin and they can still do it I'm going to try to you know go with that variation so I think it's important to still figure out okay well what can this person still tolerate and I know we talk about this all the time but the goal is to to make sure that they're still training still working still in the gym uh, because you know again if you're if you're giving them that rest diagnosis and, and telling them to rest and not do these things well then they're losing fitness and it's going to be that mm-hmm. much harder to get back to it 
I love that. I agree hundred percent. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but there's a Mike Will quote that basically says you got to focus on the healthy parts too. So mm-hmm. if you have a bum knee, you still have another way and you got two arms. So the training doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I definitely want to dive into that a little bit more about, about ways to train around the injuries. Um, but I think I want to back up a little bit and actually talk about how to introduce load with some of these things, because sometimes you actually have to start with things a little more basic, like isometrics, right? Yep. Especially dealing with patellar tendinopathy, right? So when someone comes in and they have a really hot patellar tendon, I mean, it's just really painful, really inflamed. That's when I'm usually going to start with isometrics. And just one note about isometrics, I use them more often than not with high pain levels and when things are acute because they're analgesic effects. But I don't think that everyone needs them, especially when you get that person that comes in saying, you know, I've been dealing with this issue for a few weeks now. We started doing some stuff that I saw on the internet and it has helped. It's just there when I do X or the pain is better. It's just still there at a low level. It's kind of nagging. Those are the people that I'm usually going to start with eccentrics or heavy soil resistance on day one after working on some mobility, if that needs to be addressed. And just to elaborate a little bit more on isometrics, um, if that pain is, again, really acute and really fired up, I'm usually going to start them on some kind of open chain knee extension. And we'll play around with the angle and the intensity, which is usually going to be something that's submaximal. And what we want is wanted to allow them to target that patellar tendon at a pain intensity of about three or four out of 10. So zero is no pain, 10 is like sticking your hand in a fire. We're somewhere in that mild category. And in the clinic, I'm just usually going to use a mobilization belt, but a knee extension machine where you can load it up with so much weight that you can't actually move the bar, the pad, when you press against it, that works too. And we're going to hold these up to 45 seconds and perform about five reps. And if that doesn't target what I want, my go-to is usually the slant board, but standing on it backwards where the foot is actually going downhill. And from there, I'm either going to have them do a bilateral or a single leg squat. Again, at that angle, that gives them that three or four out of 10 pain and just hold that. And I really like that slant board because it's a nice way to shift that load anterior on the target tissue. In this case, it's the patellar tendon. And, um, you know, sometimes neither one of those are tolerated well. And if that's the case, we might use a wall sit. It really doesn't matter what you use. Just find something that targets their pain and doesn't make them any worse. Yeah. Another one I like to do too is, is, you know, if you have say an air X pad and a wall is to get them up against the wall where their knees actually against the wall and their toes dorsiflexed or their foot's dorsiflexed and their toes are against the wall. And they're actually trying to actively push their toes um, into the wall. Um, so it's again, and you find that angle. Um, so basically the amount of hip flexion, you're changing the angle, uh, uh, that you, that you're performing the isometric You figure out, again, that three out of the three out of 10 is a great number to shoot for there or a great kind of metric there. So, um, something where their, their knees up against the wall with that air X pad, and then I'm actually dorsiflex the foot and pushing the foot into the wall, um, is another way I like, I, I like to get that isometric, uh, contraction. Yeah, that's, that's a good one too. Um, there's just a lot of options there. Just make yep. sure that you have a reason and a purpose behind it. And yep. You know, you touched on this earlier, but I'm going to make a side note of this because I think it's a really important concept. Dealing with either patellofemoral pain or patellar tendinopathy, I'm typically going to start with, and this is after loading up with isometrics, but I'm typically going to start with exercises that encourage that vertical shin position. And the reason why is because that vertical shin actually increases the retropatellar space. So that's the space behind the kneecap. And it takes some of the stress off the patellar tendon as well. And then over time, as they can tolerate it, we're going to gradually let that tibia, let that, sh- let that shin track forward to more of a functional position. So again, in the beginning, we may literally start with a wall sit or a wall squat and then work our way up to something or down to something like a box squat, which is using the box or a bench or a med ball as your target. And then gradually increasing that depth of the squat as they can tolerate. <clears throat> um, other things we'll use in the early phases might be, might be split squats with the effective leg in the front, maybe an RNT split squat. We're trying to prove that valgus collapse things like TKE step-ups. Again, there's thousands of exercises out there. Just make sure that it fits the application. And 
know, this goes back to what you said earlier about as a strength coach or as a PT, especially you can be on the same side as your patient or the coach, because you know, if someone has a hot knee, they can't squat deep yet. And ha- instead of having them shut it down and completely rest, you know, maybe they can squat to a box or pull from the hang position instead of the floor, or maybe land in the power position with cleans and snatches instead of full squat. And that way they can still not just maintain, but actually gain some fitness while they're injured. And that's also a good time where they can work on skills along the way and just essentially not go crazy because they're actually still able to do something. And, and that last part is one of the big takeaways that I wanted to you know, have from this episode. And that's really been my secret for many years, how I've been able to work CrossFit athletes. So you're welcome for that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right, man. That's, I think, from a coaching perspective, like before I was even in the PT world, um, that is one thing that, that drew me to wanting to send athletes to your, uh, y'all's practice because, you know, I knew that if I sent you somebody, you're, you weren't just going to tell them not to come into the gym. And that, and we've talked about it before, but I feel like we're beating a dead horse, but at the same time, like that is huge from a coaching perspective. If you run a gym or you are a strength coach or something, or in, especially in the private sector, it's like, you need that person still coming in. Cause once they're, once they are on the shelf for a little while, it's very easy to think, well, um, do I really need this membership anymore? Do I really need, you know, to be paying for this if I'm not really using it? Um, you want them in the gym and you want a PT that's going to help them stay in. The gym. Yeah. Everybody wins. Yeah, exactly, man. I think uh, I love your, your uh, I think you said it was a Mike Boyle quote, but the, uh, the you know, two arms and another leg. Um, we talked about before here, you still have, uh, you know, that crossover effect, you know, uh, is, is real. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that, you know, you still need to be training that other leg. Um, so whether it be pistol squats or um, any other single leg variation or something on that side, like, you know, you're going to get a little bit of carryover for all those reasons we mentioned. I think we were, that was during a, the shoulder impingement episode. We really went into that. Um, so there are other things that you need that you can do. And so you got to keep, uh, keep that in the back of your mind. Absolutely. Um, and then just talking a little bit more about the treatment side of things. So we, we touched on mobility, we touched on isometrics and, you know, ways to start with that vertical shin, but you're not done there. That's usually just a good way to get things started and help get people out of pain. So once we get through that acute phase, I'm typically going to go with heavy slow resistance. And this is more so for patellar tendinopathy. And eccentric protocols work well too, but the reason why I usually choose heavy slow resistance is because I get better compliance. And that's just because these heavy slow resistance protocols call for three days a week. And eccentric protocols have a lot more reps and are usually asking for about seven days a week. And I just think about my schedule. I, I can't, I just can't do it seven days a week. So I kind of empathize with my, most of my patients for that because things happen like hurricanes. And uh, there, there's a few different protocols out there, but the usual theme of them is that you're usually going to perform your exercises at something like a three zero three zero tempo. So that's three seconds on the eccentric, three seconds of the concentric, no rest at the top of the bottom. And you work up to either the prescribed rep range or until you hit that four out of 10 pain level. And as a therapist, you pick the exercises and it can be as something as simple as a squat or even a leg press. And again, I love that slant board for patellotinopathy. My go-tos are usually the cyclist squat or just a decline step down. But the point is, is that we're now encouraging that shin to track forward to target the tissue because we want to promote the fibroblast to lay down new collagen and also for it to line up properly. And typically these are 12 week protocols. And as the week go along, the volume is going to decrease, but the load increases. So if you're not using these research, a few different ones and just pick one because they all work. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You're good. I was just going to say, you know, from, from there, as the pain is starting to decrease, you know, we're still working on mechanics and mobility all along the way because that's also something that usually doesn't improve overnight. And I do find that, you know, both of these knee conditions 
tend to be a top down issue. So I spend just as much time loading the hips as I do the knees themselves because the hips essentially control the position of the knee. So my people are getting lots of hip thrusters, bridge work, suitcase carries, step ups and lunges with weight in the contralateral hand, and sometimes even clamshells, right? Clamshells have their place if you use them right. I know we hate on them a lot. Um, and if another point I want to make is that if someone got hurt because they moved like crap, then we need to be addressing that as well. And, you know, with that, we'll gradually introduce and build up in stage plyometric and return to sport positions that are specific to whatever their demands are. And with fitness athletes, whenever it's appropriate and whenever they can tolerate it, you better be sure that we're putting them into a loaded position where their knees are tracking forward because you don't want that first time to be back in the gym at the bottom of a snatch when they weren't ready. So make sure your facilities are equipped properly and make sure they can actually test the waters with you and troubleshoot that with you as a therapist. No, that's, that's awesome. And the only thing I wanted to add to that was, um, we now have this great method to where we can still stimulate a ton of adaptation with lower loading. And that is blood flow restriction training. So oh, yeah. another instance where BFR is a, a wonderful addition to uh, a treatment program. Uh, so that's another reason why I like sending people over to you guys. Cause I know that they're going to be able to, that you're going to implement this in their training. Cause as you know, if you're a new listener and haven't heard us talk about this, uh, you know, the multitude of times that we have, uh, it's a, an opportunity for us to still create, uh, you know, some significant adaptations and at the very least, uh, mitigate some, some of the negative side effects of, of disuse and not, you know, not training the same. So we're mitigating some of the atrophy that might happen. Um, but most of the time we're actually stimulating things like hypertrophy by using really low level loads, 20 to 30% of one RM, which uh, when we have a, a tendinopathy or a hot knee, we can't load it very heavily, but, uh, but loading it with this BFR, uh, you know, protocol, we can still keep that person, you know, making progress and at the very least not losing fitness during this entire process. Yeah, man, that's huge. I, I didn't even think about that. I mean, you, you mentioned hypertrophy, but also the increases in growth hormone, which are going to help promote that tendon healing. I mean, there's, there's so many benefits to that. So that fits in well. It's just like the icing on the cake for sure. And, and speaking of hypertrophy, I, there's I was one point I wanted to make sure we touched on. I was trying to figure out a way to squeeze it in here. But, you know, we do know that the quads control the position of the kneecap, right? I mean, that's something we learned like, you know, semester one of PT school. And no, you cannot isolate the VMO no matter what they told you in school. Wait, so, you mean I can't just like <laughs> turn my foot out and do a straight leg raise? What are you talking no, about? It doesn't work that way, man. It doesn't work that way. And, and if you feel that that's a contributing factor, you're going to have to load your patient up with enough weight and proper sets of rep ranges actually stimulate those strength and hypertrophy changes. And another thing too, with that said, the posterior chain, don't forget about that. So the glutes and the hamstrings, they're going to have to play a big role in fixing that quad dominant squat too. So everything matters. Check everything, but find a way to do it efficiently. And that's why I like SFMA. I always talk about that. Yeah, man. So if, if just to kind of summarize all of this, um, we're, we're, somebody comes and they have, they have this hot knee going on. You're going to do an assessment, which is going to involve watching them move. It's not just, you know, touching the knee, but touching the knees and part of it, asking them questions, part of it, but make sure that you're assessing their movement, looking at the hip, the knee and the ankle in multiple different planes. And then when we go to address this, we're, we're going to be, you know, attacking these, maybe some mobility deficits and then trying to actively load into that new range so it you know it quote unquote sticks we're also going to be finding ways to still train around it and still load the quad if we can in a safe manner maybe that starts with isometrics and eventually we keep moving into like we talked about this heavy slow resistance protocol we talked about bfr um, we're still training the opposite leg we're finding movement variations that we can keep doing so so there's a lot that can be done here so if you're a patient out there and you get you have a little bit of pain going on like there's still a lot that you can do um you know during this time so 
Um, what else, anything else that you want to mention there that I didn't cover in that recap? No, that was great, man. I think, I think the one other thing that's just coming to mind too is, is just thinking about why this would happen in the first place. So getting into those acute to chronic work, workload ratios. Yeah, dude, that's the whole, yeah, I can't believe we haven't touched on that yet. Uh, yeah. If you're coming to me with this, the first thing I'm going to do is also, you know, the, one of the first things I'm going to do is look at your program. Um, if I'm not writing it, if I'm writing it, then I'm going to evaluate my own work and, and see if I, you know, if I made a mistake, maybe I, you know, wasn't abiding by some of those acute chronic principles, acute to chronic principles, um, workload principles. Uh, but that's a big part of it, man. Um, mm-hmm. If you are acutely increasing your workload um, in these either deep knee flexion exercises or impact or whatever it might be um, too quickly, then yeah, you're setting yourself up for, for uh, increased injury risk. So that's a huge point there. Yeah, absolutely. And just from experience as a PT, when you're asking your patient about it, be sure to ask it a few different times in a few different ways. So did you do anything differently? No. All right. Did you do a new movement that you hadn't done before? Did y'all tack on some more reps or something you're not used to? So, you know, yeah. Be sure to try your best to tactfully peel back a few layers when diving into acute to chronic workload ratios. That's really important. Yeah. And I, it seems to me that a lot of times when I see this happen, it's um, someone who doesn't necessarily have great um, kind of single leg mechanics and it's a big a large increase in uh single leg work so maybe they you know it's they're doing their normal amounts of bilateral squatting movements that they have in their general program but then they had a ton of uh, kind of either walking lunges or loaded lunges or mm-hmm. uh, something like that when there was uh, kind of, it seems that that single leg position if they aren't able to really control that position a higher volume of uh, their single leg movements that seems to be like a common theme of, uh, of somebody coming in i asked them about their program uh, they they recently had an increase in in that kind of volume mm-hmm. yeah real world examples there so do that do that step down test see what you get this week yeah man i think that and that's another thing too again we we're kind of at the end here but um, as part of my initial movement assessment with people i test to step up um, and i'm looking at not only the up uh, and for the up portion i'm looking at uh, you know knee position i'm also looking at how much you know uh, trunk lean they have there's a few things looking for on the up but equally as important is how controlled in their positioning when they come on the down so, um, you know, mm-hmm. if, in your initial movement assessment with people, um, as, as a coach might want to include a step up in there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as a PT, if you're actually taking the time to do a thorough movement assessment, you're probably doing better than over half of the profession. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and if you want to learn a little bit more about dealing with, with this kind of thing, um, because again, we talked about one of these uh, is termed runner's knee. Uh, nice little segue into the running con ed course that Vertex oh, like how you did that. Will, be, will be hosting um, November 10th. Um, and I think it's 10th and 11th. Is that correct? That is correct. November yeah. 10th and 11th. Yep. 10th and 11th. Chris Johnson, Zarin PT, one of the top PT slash running gurus out there. Uh, so if you want to learn more, I'm sure this will be a concept that we go over um, on that weekend. Uh, make sure you're checking that out. Um, additionally, we have another Con Ed course here in Columbia, the Body Tempering Certification course on November 3rd at Spud's New Place. Registration just opened up. Um, in one day, we were over half full. So um, make sure that you are jumping on that if you are trying to, uh, to, to take that course um, if you want to find more information about that um, you know you can look at chris's website um, at zarin pt i believe is what it is and you can also look at donnie uh, at at thompson bowtie if you want to learn some more about that stuff if you want to find more from me check out at cpt underscore strength or carolinaperformancetraining.com if you want to hear more from brandon go to at vertex pt or vertex pt.com 
We appreciate you guys listening. If you have any other specific examples like this that you want us to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. Um, we really love getting topics from you guys. So hopefully you learned something from, from this today that you can implement. Uh, and we appreciate the listen and tune in next week. This episode is brought to you by Vertex PT Specialist. One patient per doctor physical therapy per hour. Guaranteed. The best physical therapy ever. Check us out at vertexpt.com or on the gram at vertexpt.